on today's episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Gray Sutanto about his chapter on baptism in the TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. So we cover all sorts of topics like why are Reformed theology and analytic theology not incompatible? What is Christian baptism? What does that mean to be a sign and a seal? And does everyone think it's both a sign and a seal? What's the spectrum of views here? on baptism. Should the word preached always accompany baptism? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're podcasts that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in doing that, we want to think with particular virtues. So we want to think well with uh, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We hope we embody those sorts of virtues in uh, the interviews, whether it's with people we agree with or people we disagree with. We think modeling those things is helpful for just basic Christian faith and life, but also in our current polarized culture, particularly in our theological local church culture, where it seems like everything is very um, polarized. So hopefully we can... I guess, promote those sorts of virtues because we find them right in James 3. We find the the wisdom that is from above to be those sorts of things. So we hope to do that. On this particular episode, we're talking with Dr. Gray Sutanto, and I'm really looking forward to this. So Gray and I, we I don't know how we connected. I think I somehow connected with him on Facebook and we started messaging, but it's because he's been writing all this awesome work. So he's done a ton of research on Herman Bavink and got a bunch of essays out there on that. I, I've been tremendously helped by them. He's got a book on him as well. And I think one of the essays that I really enjoyed is, I don't remember the particular title, but uh, I guess his Reformed Eclecticism, which man, I can't even speak, but the idea of he's he's picking and choosing different things uh, from different movements and utilizing them in his own theology. And I found that extremely helpful. I think that was in the Scottish Journal of Theology. But today we plan to discuss his chapter on baptism from the TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. So baptism, always a fun live debate. Gray is a I think are you, you're a Presbyterian of some sort. I don't know. Are you a PCA or something else? Yeah, I'm definitely Presbyterian. I'm ordained in the IPC International Presbyterian Church, which was from the UK. So that's where I okay. stand. Perfect. So that is what we plan to talk about. And I think we're going to have a good discussion about it. So Gray, got the, I think he's got the right personality for it. I mean, me and Brandon are both Baptists, so obviously we disagree on some things. But I think overall on arching, this is going to be a fun discussion. So Gray, before we get into it, for those of our listeners who, who have no idea who you are, Give us a little bit of a background, what you're doing, and then what made you interested in thinking about things like baptism, uh, things like analytic theology? I mean, not it's not every day a historical theologian is doing analytic theology, so maybe give me a little bit of backstory on that. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Jordan. And I'm just realizing now that I am having a conversation with two Baptists on the issue of baptism, so I might have uh, shot myself in the foot here. We'll see. But um, yeah, I was... Uh, I was trained at Biola University in my undergraduate um, uh, years, so there I actually started out as a philosophy major before taking on a double major in philosophy and, and biblical studies. 
And basically, the philosophy department was an analytic philosophy department.、Um, I was very much introduced to all the major topics within analytic philosophy, and really discovered the 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 beauty and also the the kind of logical rigor and also patience modeled in analytic philosophy through that program. Even though I disagreed with some of the conclusions about theology that they might have drawn at that period of time, so I knew that. There were a lot of tools in analytic philosophy that might be useful for clarity, logical parsimony, and so on. But I wasn't yet sure of how all these things go together with regard to historical theology and reform theology, and so on. Until really, I went to seminary at Westminster, and then on to my PhD years at the University of Edinburgh, where I started to think about how reform scholasticism is a is a huge help for the formation of theology. And how really reform scholasticism and analytic theology and philosophy had a lot of things in common. Now, some people might dispute that because reform scholasticism is is all about analogical thinking and and mystery and paradox, and they might think analytic theology is not that. But really, recent years have have fortified this this view of analytic theology as not enemies with analogical thinking or enemies with. An embrace of mystery and so on. So I just started to explore that sort of connection, and saw there's good people working on that kind of material,、uh, working on being good historical reform theologians and also being good analytic theologians. So、uh, I started to slowly embrace the fact that hey, analytic reform theology is possible and fruitful. So that was the the initial. Turning point for my own thinking about at reform analytic theology. We could talk more about that if you want to. But when I got to the topic of baptism, it was because of really a conversation with James Turner and James Arcady, the the editors of the TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. They needed a chapter in baptism, and we were realizing that really there isn't anyone out there who's writing on baptism from an analytic point of view. Maybe. Kind of side references to it here and there in the analytic literature, but there was only one essay on it, and it was by Terence Cuneo, who wrote from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. And so we were thinking, this is a good opportunity to showcase kind of a historically minded, but also a reform perspective on 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 baptism, which is what they want. Kind of traditioned、it、doesn't have to be necessarily reform, but a traditioned account of baptism. So that was the opportunity that I that I jumped for. Because it, it seems like a good opportunity to do that. So I was going to ask you about the compatibility of reform theology and analytic theology. I think you pretty well covered that, though.、Uh, so let's just go ahead and, and and jump right into your your chapter here in this、uh, TNT Clark、uh, handbook on an- analytic theology.、Uh, the title is Christian Baptism: A Reformed Account. So let's begin with how you define baptism, and then I think in your definition you're going to mention it, it being a sign and a seal. So, what do you mean by those words,、uh, a sign and a seal? Yeah, thanks for that. So, in my definition of baptism, and we can cover this later, I, I try to say that from a reformed standpoint, baptism is a pneumatic or a pneumatological and a covenantal model of baptism that is being offered there, and it's a sign and a seal. Given the context of this being a, a pneumatic and covenantal account of baptism, so it's a sign of the spiritual work of regeneration, where you are cleansed of your sins and you have received forgiveness for those sins, and you have now a new creature as well into、uh, fellowship with God and so on. So it's a sign of that, but it's also a seal of God's 
name being stamped upon you that you belong to the triune God and he has his authority over you. And now you belong to the covenant community of God. So in that respect, then when baptism is enacted upon you, um, the spirit can work alongside it with it um, to, to give you the substance that it is signifying at some particular point in your life. And the spirit also inducts you into this covenant community, namely the visible church. So there's kind of a twofold way of talking about it, the pneumatic aspect and also this covenantal aspect. So in in a reformed model of baptism, there's, there's a lot of weight put on covenantal promise. Um, but sometimes, and, and maybe I'm just listening to the wrong people, but sometimes uh, I, that promise is not really defined. So I, I guess, what does that mean? Like, how, how do we understand what, what exactly... Um, is packed into that promise. Maybe a better way of asking it is, what what is entailed by that promise for the baptized infant um, that is not promised to anyone else? For instance, um, I, I think the promise would have to be more than just if you have faith in Christ and repent, then um, you know you will be saved because that promise is true of everyone, whether they're baptized or not. Um, so unpack that and help us to understand what exactly this promise means. Yeah, thanks. So um, the promise there, the the idea that, you know, sort of a lot of Reformed people would, would quote a lot of passages of Scripture about how the covenant blessings of God are for you and for your children. And this is in common with the Old Covenant context where Israelites would have their male children circumcised because they are part of the covenant people of God in the Old Covenant in the theocracy of Israel. But now in the New Covenant, that is uh, that circumcision initiation right is now uh, the baptismal right. So so the covenant promise that is given to the children is not so much that uh, they would indeed become regenerate. I think that is part of the secret operation of the Holy Spirit. God himself decides when and whether to give the substance of baptism to the particular infant. But the promise is about the covenantal blessings, namely the fact that they will grow up as children of the Lord within the context of the church community. They have a kind of what I've called a, a covenantal or federal holiness. They're under the covenant of God, according to Gerhard Zavos. And so they will grow up receiving the blessings of the covenant, namely the preaching of the word of God, the witnessing of the Christian community around them, the kind of exposure to the moral conscience of that community. And they're invited, therefore, to participate in that community and to uh, to live out that Christian baptism, to improve on it, so to speak, right? According to language of Westminster Larger Catechism. So uh, the the analogy, I think, with Israel is very, very useful because those who are circumcised and, and the children of those who are circumcised, right? They might not be part of the true Israel, according to Romans 9, 6, because not all of Israel belong to Israel, but they are still going to be exposed to the covenantal blessings of theocratic Israel, namely exposure to the law of God, knowing that they should be different from all the other nations, knowing that they can have, they can witness the sacrifices, they can witness the patriarchs, they can listen to the prophets and the priests and so on. These are real covenantal blessings. Now that you're part of the, Christ, the Jewish community in that context, you are exposed to these things, even when in your heart, you might later on reject it, right? So, that's the promise that 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 is given to you if you're children of the people of God. In the same way, in baptism, the promise given to the children is that you would become really a part of this community, exposed to these things. And so there's a higher responsibility on you. 
that you should move and use these covenantal blessings toward true fellowship with God. And that's what baptism signifies as well, that, that you should get remission of sins and so on. And one of the things that, that really comes out of this practically is that you treat the children of believers as believers rather than unrepentant sinners, that you actually look at them and, and you presume that they are part of the covenant of God, even though you recognize that they might actually choose to renounce the faith later on or something like that. But you don't, you don't treat them evangelistically as your primary mode, but rather you treat them as disciples, as already in the faith, that, that they're, they should be encouraged to keep on in the, being in the faith and so on. There's a lot there, but... <laughs> no, that, that's, there's a lot there. And I, I want to ask you about this because, I mean, I think me, I'm much more sympathetic to the traditional Calvinistic reform sort of way of thinking about baptism. I think Brandon, if he weren't a credo Baptist, we talked earlier, he'd go the Lutheran route. So for me, I, I'm very sympathetic to it, but part of my hang-up is it seems like all these covenantal blessings I can still give to my children whether I baptize them or not. I mean, my children come with me every Sunday to church. They sit under the word preached. They have these same blessings. So I've always struggled with trying to understand what is the material difference, because I can presume that the Lord will bring, you know, regeneration at some point in my children's lives because of God's usage of families. I mean, I think you can be credo Baptist and say God uniquely has ordained and designed the family to be the, the carrier of the faith in the prime, primarily the primary carrier of the faith and all those sorts of things. So how many think through what, what is that major distinctive? Cause it, to me, I feel like I can get all those things for the most part without yeah. leaving credo baptism. Yeah. So first of all, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that because I, I don't think that maybe I've been talking to the wrong Baptists, but, but, when I first became a Christian, I was a Baptist. That wasn't the mode of thinking that I had, that I have all the benefits, same benefits as, say, a Lutheran paedo-baptist or a Presbyterian paedo-baptist. So really glad to hear that. But I think, you know, what immediately comes to mind is what Tyrton said, that this is ultimately an institution that has been given to us by God. So it's meant to be a means of grace. And I think what Tyrton might say in response to that would be, what if someone in Israel would say, what's the benefit of circumcision? I can just raise up my kids in the Israelite law. They can hear the prophets and so on. Why, why circumcise them? And, and the point is that it's, it's, it's first and foremost, something that is commanded and instituted by God. And secondly, it's the point is that this is, this is also meant to this, there's a fitting relation between the sign and the thing signified. And with regard to the infant or in regard with the circumcision or baptism, it's always about the fact that God has marked you out before you were born God has included you within the covenant community without your initial awareness of it, and therefore you you're being you're being signified by this mark from the very beginning, right? So, I think that would be what I would say the, the commandment of God there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, well, I, I don't want to turn this into a baptism debate because that's not what we invited you here for. And that's not exactly what your article is about. So we're sure. going to stop ganging up on you now with the questions. So uh, now a, a, a question that's specific to your article, you, you draw on um, James Arcadi's taxonomy that he uses for the Eucharist um, as it relates to the pneumatic, corporeal and, and non-normal um, 
presence views when it comes to the Eucharist, and you kind of apply that um, to baptism. So walk us through the different spectrum of views on baptism, and I guess this is where you really would kind of start interacting with uh, Terrence Cuneo's account that he that he writes about. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. So uh, I drew from James Arcati's book, The Incarnational Model of the Eucharist, and there he offered three models. There's sub-distinctions within these models, but roughly the, the three models are the pneumatic, the corporeal, and the no-non-normal. Uh, say that quickly three times. Uh, no non-normal, right? So the, the pneumatic, corporeal, and the no non-normal. The, the pneumatic model, broadly speaking, is, is this view that in the Lord's Supper, in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, Christ's Spirit is present there. And it lifts you up by, by pointing you toward Christ in the heavenly places through his spiritual presence in the Lord's Supper. So that there isn't an automatic transformation of the Lord's Supper into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But if the believer places their faith in Jesus and receives the sacraments along with the word preached, they would be lifted up to to contemplate Christ in the heavenly places through the spiritual presence of the Lord there in the elements of the sacraments. That's the pneumatic Calvinistic model, the Reformed model. And then the corporeal model uh, in the Roman Catholic account, especially in Arcadi's discussion there, is the model of transubstantiation. And so it's a corporeal model where the substance of the bread and wine are transmuted into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is done ex opera operato, right? By by the work working itself because of what the, the consecration of the elements uh, had affected at that particular point when you received the Lord's Supper. So there is a, again, a corporeal model because the body and blood of Jesus really is physically or substantially present there that replaces the substance of the bread and wine. The accidents might still be the same. It still looks like bread, tastes like bread, and so on, but it's really now substantially the uh, body of Jesus. The Lutheran models also discuss in that regard the consubstantiation model where the body and blood accompanies the bread and the wine. Um, So that's partly a corporeal model as well. But then there's the Zwinglian no non-normal view which is just this idea that it's you know it's a double negative so it's really god's presence in the body and blood is not exceptional to his presence anywhere else it's it's the same as his presence anywhere else and the function of the body and blood there is meant to remind the believer or it, it witnesses to their forgiveness the death and resurrection of jesus but god's presence there is not any different from his presence in your bedroom or in presence anywhere else. But really, this is just something given to God for you as a reminder for you or something like that. So I applied that to baptism. And and applied to baptism, it actually works quite well. If, if in the Lord's Supper, it's about the divine presence, I think in baptism is the mode of divine action, right? How, how, does, this, how does this enact what it's supposed to uh, enact, what it's supposed to signify? So if you apply the pneumatic model to baptism, right? The spirit works with the water, but it doesn't necessarily work with the water automatically. It's not as if when you baptize the infant or baptize the person, whether adult or infant, that they're immediately going to be regenerated at that point of baptism, right? But they might be receiving the substance of what baptism signifies before, at the moment of, or after um, the, the, the account of baptism there. So the spirit is, is free to work alongside 
apart from or after baptism, right? That's, that's the main idea of the pneumatic model. And um, the spirit doesn't work, again, ex opera operato. The word of God must be preached alongside baptism and baptism is, is, is a sign to that spiritual work. If you apply the corporeal model to baptism, then you have a kind of baptismal regeneration view where when you baptize someone, the water really does somehow efficaciously regenerate you because of the consecration of God working on the water or something like that, right? And the reformed had always objected to that. They would typically say, and Scott Swain has a, has a nice article on baptism in the reformed tradition in the Oxford Handbook of Sacramental Theology. And it basically said, if you say that you know, water regenerates this. You've, you've conferred on water something that only the spirit could do. That this is, this is a divine prerogative and capacity and you've just put it on the water. And that's a mistake. That's a category error. But that's what the corporeal model would, would have, right? You baptize them, they get regenerated. Um, the no non-normal view is just this view of baptism. Again, it's, it's kind of like the Lord's Supper. God doesn't work any exceptional uh, doesn't work exceptionally there either. That God simply uses water as a as a reminder to you, as a witness to the horizontal witness to uh, the other people witnessing that this person is now committing themselves to Jesus. But the spirit or the water isn't any isn't doing anything special in that regard through the water itself. It's not exceptional to other 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 ways in which God is always at work in the world, preserving the world. So that's that's where I would use Arcadius model, and I basically try to say hey, how can I defend a pneumatic model in this regard? Yeah, and Brandon, you would follow a pneumatic model, right, yourself? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think yeah. there's anything keeping a Baptist from following that, that model. Obviously, yeah. we would have disagreements on, you know, the timing of baptism and all that stuff. But, but I mean, as far as where it would fall on this spectrum, I, I definitely think that that seems right to me. Yeah, because I'm, I'm pneumatic as well. I mean, I think uh, the confession that we find the best the second London confession, I think walks through that same sort of thinking with the, the spiritual nature that's going on there. Now question with that model in view, you mentioned how the word preach should always accompany baptism. Why is that? What, what is the significance of the word being preached being linked to baptism? Because I think of probably at least in America, I don't know when this, movement started where it's just kind of like, hey, let's just almost divorce baptism from the worship service on a Sunday. Let's go hang out at the lake on a random Thursday and just start baptizing people. So why is this supposed to be linked together? Right. Fantastic. So again, I really hope that every Baptist is a confessional Baptist. So that's exactly right, that you can be a Baptist and hold on to the pneumatic model. And I've, I've, I've lost count of how many conversations I had in the context of Jakarta anyway, and Indonesia ministering here where people are like, you baptize infants? Does that mean that infants are immediately Christians? But they can't have faith, right? So that's normally the kind of objection that I get that if you baptize infants, you must believe in baptismal regeneration or something. And it's important to, to keep that distinct without realizing on their part, if they're, if they're Baptists, they have confessional resources to hold on to the same sort of pneumatic account that I've just outlined there. Um, so... Why must the word accompany the act of baptism, the initiation rite of baptism? Well, again, in the traditional scholastic reformed accounts, we would have to say that the word accompanies baptism because baptism doesn't confer anything different from or anything new aside 
from the, the gospel that has been preached in the word of God. So it's not as if the preached word declares the gospel and then sa- the sacraments are giving you some added extra supernatural grace that helps you move forward in the Christian life. Um, I think the reform would associate that kind of model with a more Roman Catholic account. And so it's, it's, it's the sacraments don't confer anything different from hearing the word preach, but rather this is now just a visible uh, uh, representation of an invisible word being preached to you just as in the preached word. And there's an analogy there, right? When you preach a sermon and you preach the gospel, there is no ex opera operato kind of automatic efficacy to your preaching, right? The spirit has to work with a sermon to render it efficacious for the listener. And the same way in baptism, there's no automatic operation here on the heart of the, of the sinner, but rather the spirit can work alongside baptism uh, to, to give it the thing signified, right? So uh, that's why the word has to accompany it. And, and why we don't just have random baptisms on some Thursday night uh, done by some random folks. Um, well, good Christians, right? Uh, not, not just random folks, but um, it's because, right, baptism is also a seal, it's it's a it's a sign and seal instituted by God by the triune name, and again, Tuerten is very helpful here. He would say that only representatives of the triune name, namely ordained ministers, should carry the weight of assigning the seal to the person to the recipient. Right. So he would talk about it in terms of a king and his representatives that that not just anyone can get to bear the name of the king and to to assign it to a person. So that's what I think is is quite right. So something that I, I don't know that we had had talked about beforehand that we were going to discuss, but I think we would be making a big mistake if we didn't give you a chance to point this out, because I thought this was really good in your article. So Cuneo, he has this thing that he calls the intelligibility puzzle, um, and, and you think that the pneumatic account of Reformed um, baptism, that model, the pneumatic account has a particular payoff that gets around this intelligibility puzzle that he puts out. So maybe just take a, a second to explain what the puzzle is and then what the payoff is for the pneumatic model that helps you get out of it. Yeah, great question there, uh, Brandon. Uh, really quick, let me let me add this this one comment about why, again, just baptism couldn't just happen randomly. Uh, that, that points back to the pneumatic account and the covenantal account we're trying to posit here. Um, the reason why as well as only ordained ministers who represent God, who can do the act of baptism on the recipient is because again, baptism is a covenantal act. It's, it's something that initiates someone into the covenant community. If you just have some few, you know, good intended Christians who are just baptizing someone in some lake and then that's it because they're, they're witnessing to their recommitment it's not necessarily going to be to be done by an elder and it's not necessarily going to be done as a transition into a local church. Baptism is really important to emphasize that its efficacy is precisely to say that this person is now part of the local church, part of the covenant community of God, and they will have their life within this community in this particular local church as they are now participants of the global church of God, the visible church, right? It's important to keep that in mind I'm going to get to Cuneo here's intelligibility puzzle. With Cuneo, the intelligibility puzzle basically says that in Eastern Orthodox, he's using a lot of the confessional liturgical documents of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And, and it, it says things like the water really does effectualize the regenerate states unto the recipient, right? 
And Cuneo says the intelligibility puzzle really is this. How can water confer such heightened spiritual states unto the recipient? There seems to be something unintelligible about that. Water is something physical. Regenerate states is something spiritual. How does that even work, right? So initially he says, well, maybe you take this kind of legally or uh, kind of in an adoptionist way. So where when you confer the water, they're now part of the people of God. They're, 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 they're maybe treated that way or something like that. But that, he says, that sounds like a legal fiction sort of, sort of idea that the water says that they're kind of regenerative, but this is really not, this is metaphorical or something. They're, they're treated like they are, but this is completely metaphorical. So Cunha says that's not going to do all the way. So rather than saying that and resorting to a kind of legal fiction in his view, we want to distinguish between regenerative states, which are process, uh, which are in a process, and a regenerative state, which is a product. So when you're baptizing someone, is this now initiating a process of regeneration, or is this initiating a product of the person being regenerated? You see? So a process interpretation versus a, a product interpretation. And Cuneo basically says, well, it's only unintelligible if you take the product interpretation, where once you baptize someone, they are now immediately and, and productively, efficaciously transformed and regenerated. And that's a, he says, that won't do. But rather, we want to say this is a process interpretation, where when you baptize someone, they're initiating the process of, of being regenerated. And as they conduct their lives within the church, they can improve that regenerative state that they're in, uh, so to speak. And I basically said that that kind of reading is not compatible with the Reformed tradition. Because if you're Reformed and you believe in something like effectual calling, regeneration is a once-for-all moment where you are given new life and now you're enabled to obey. Regeneration is not a, a process. It's not something that has incremental progressive uh, value to it. So it's a once-for-all thing. So we can't adopt a process interpretation. And we don't need to, precisely because we don't have a corporeal model of baptism, which is what the Eastern Orthodox position, I think, as he delineates it there, has. Because in his position, somehow regeneration is is that which is accomplished by the water being given to the recipient in baptism. And I basically just say, we don't need a kind of regenerative efficacy of baptism. We just have to say it's a sign of regeneration. And then secondly, the efficacy is not something that is uh, spiritual immediately, but rather something that is, by spiritual I mean regenerative, but rather something that is covenantal, that this is that which inducts this person as bearing the, the covenant sign of God, sign and seal of God, that this person belongs under the triune name in that visible community of God. That's the efficacy, not any kind of immediate regenerative efficacy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you make a distinction between um, being, well, this isn't original with you, but but you have it in your article, being under the covenant, under the covenant and being in the covenant. Explain that distinction to us and, and why it's relevant to this discussion. Yeah, so so Gerhardus Voss makes that distinction in his Reformed Dogmatics, which there is you know collection of class notes uh, from his lectures, and and basically he says when you are baptized, you are efficaciously putting someone under the covenants of God. 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are in the covenant in the sense that you have a kind of inherent internal fellowship with the triune God. You might be a part of his covenant community, in other words, but you're not yet participating in that sort of spiritual transformative way within your own heart. And so the kind of efficacy of, of, of baptism, because we don't want to just say this is legal fiction, right? The, the real efficacy is that you are now under the covenant of God. Again, you're participating in the blessings of that covenant community. And you can improve on that covenantal uh, uh, inclusion by being actually inherently regenerated yourself, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that you're not just exposed externally to these covenant blessings, but you're also applying them to yourself internally in your heart to God, right? So so Voss makes that distinction because he wants to say that when you're baptized into being under the covenant, you're supposed to use these covenantal blessings so that you might be in the covenant inherently. And Voss argues, therefore, that the being under the covenant is an instrumental means of becoming in the covenant. So someone who really is baptized in the church from an early age really does have an advantage over someone who doesn't, right? Because they have all of these means and understandings of the, the gospel, at least intellectually, for them to use it. They have examples and role models in their lives and so on so that they can use all of these as an instrument toward really being in the covenant. And so why is that relevant to the cuneo intelligibility puzzle? Well, again, we can say that baptism really is efficacious because of that covenantal efficacy, not necessarily a immediate regenerative efficacy. That's that's what we want to say. Very good, very good. Um, well, I just want to commend this article to, to all the listeners. Again, this is in the, the TNT, um, TNT Clark Handbook on Analytic Theology, uh, Christian Baptism and Reformed Account. Now, I want to b- circle back to um, not, not, not a baptism debate, but just kind of maybe your story on um, how, because you said when you became a believer, you were uh, you were a Baptist or you were at least in a Baptist context at that point. So what was, what's kind of your story of your transition from a Credo Baptist to a Pado Baptist? Was it one argument that was kind of a clincher or did this happen over a long period of time? Do you start reading different people? How did that go? Yeah, it was, it was a, a series of events over a longer period of time, I think. I think, yeah, I grew up uh, as an atheist, I became converted um, at the very end of high school, and I was converted in a charismatic Pentecostal Baptist context. So I, I therefore feel a closeness in terms of my own heart to my charismatic friends, precisely because I was converted in that context. But yeah, I was a Baptist immediately there. But I became a Presbyterian about five years or so after my conversion. And it was a few... Um, a few arguments and then a particular breakfast that made me Presbyterian. I'll talk about that in a second here. Uh, but but basically, some of the arguments that were kind of beginning to be persuasive was that continuity between Old and New Covenants, which is probably something you've heard a thousand times before from Presbyterians. Um, that continuity, yes, between Old and New Covenants, um, between circumcision, therefore, and the parallel with baptism, and the fact that if you have a discontinuity, that has to be incredibly explicit, I think, biblically speaking. And secondly, I became convinced through someone like Herman Boving that your theological anthropology, your view of the image of God is not individualistic, but rather it's, it's covenantal in the sense that who you are and made in God's image is always being under someone as a representative. And that's either in Adam or in Christ. So there's always a, a corporate dimension to the image of God. And Boving would argue that 
this reflects something about the triune God. And if you're made in God's image, there will be patterns of unities and diversities in creation and especially in the human being. So you see this in the family with uh, the, the husband as the head of the family. You see this in nations with the president as the head of the nation or the king as the head of the nation or the queen, right? And then you also have it ultimately in the covenant theology, right? In, in Adam or in Christ, in the covenant of works or in the covenant of, of grace. So you are never just an individual human being. And that kind of theological, anthropological perspective was very helpful and persuasive for me. And then finally, after all those sort of uh, shifts, there, there were many more, I won't mention them all, but 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 one particular breakfast with uh, Carl Truman at my time at Westminster was very formative for me. He probably doesn't even know that this happened. But uh, we were talking about uh, baptism over pancakes and bacon. And he basically just said to me, at the end of the day, are you going to treat your child as a part of the covenant community of God or not? And, you know, we can talk about whether or not you need to give them the covenant sign at that point. But he basically said, if you are going to treat your child as part of the covenant community of God, and you're not going to treat them like they are an unbeliever, why not give them the covenant sign? Something to that effect. It was a very practical discussion. And I remember I stepped away from that breakfast and I was like, out of all the different theological arguments, that was the one that moved me the most. Maybe all the building blocks were already there or something. But I thought to myself, when I, ha when I have a child, I will baptize this person because they are part of the covenant community of God. And I want them to grow up not having any memory of not knowing Jesus. That's all I can remember thinking. So I owe I owe Carl for that still in terms of baptism. Uh, so that's that's what ultimately moved me towards a a a pedo Baptist position. Uh, I I don't know if you know this. I've got an article out um, published out however many years ago now, uh, where I don't remember the exact title, but it's something along the lines of "Reforming Credo Baptism: A Westminster Alternative for Baptist Identity." So I try to take what I find is very attractive personally in the Reformed tradition and appropriate it for Baptist life. So I tried to to plunder the Egyptians. <laughs> right. You're not Egyptians, but you, know, yeah. you, get, well, you get the well, point. Well, you know, you've learned from the past because that's what the London Baptist confession writers were doing, right? That's right. They, they perfected <laughs> it. That's right. Yeah. Sure, sure. Okay, sure enough. So... Great. In your own experience, what are the the top resources on baptism you would recommend? Uh, and you can think this could be pastorally, or this could be academically, um, or or both. Uh, either way, uh, what are the top resources in your mind? Yeah, some really helpful resources I think would be um, just coming back to the primary sources. So, yeah, read the Westminster. Confession of Faith, Larger Catechism, the London Baptist Confession, if that's more of your take on this. Um, so those are really, really helpful, very brief summaries on kind of a traditional, traditioned account of baptism in, in both of those documents. And then some other primary sources here, Herman Vitius on his account of covenantal baptism. This is, I think, in the, it's translated in the Mid-America Journal of Theology. It's like a 60-page scholastic treatise on why baptism, what is baptism. Very useful. Tiritans chapters on baptism are very useful. Of course, Herman Bovink has a, has a briefer section on baptism than Tiritan does, I think, but, but also very, very helpful if you want a more modern account of it. 
And then a couple of chapters that were really helpful was um, Scott Swain's chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Sacramental Theology and David Gibson's Timaleos article on a covenantal anthropology for a covenantal view of baptism. That's more exegetical than all the other ones. And he's got that particular article is an issue, I think, that debates baptism. So he's got a, a credo Baptist that, that responds back to him um, and so on. And uh, yeah, I'd like to think that my little chapter in the TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology also serves as a kind of primer to sort of these baptismal distinctions that become really useful within um, church history. So those would be the places where I would point. That's excellent. And yeah, I, I definitely do think your chapter is a really nice introduction to the topic, laying out the views, laying out the positions. So for those who are listening, I definitely commend you to get a copy of the chapter if you can't get a copy of the book. I know I've told people before in interview when we interviewed James and JT on the book, I told them, hey, if you can't afford it, tell your library to get it. Well, I know somebody told their local library, I think it was their public library, and hey, can you get this? And Lo and behold, they get the book. So it works. So if you can't afford it, go do that. Tell your library to get it. Because then not only do you get to enjoy it, but others too. Um, especially if it's a public library, you know, a random person stumbles upon analytic theology. So <laughs> I <laughs> think right. that'd be cool. Uh, Gray, are there any areas for those people who are interested in following you and your work? Do you have a website? Do you have places that they can go to keep up with those sort of things? I mean, is, the, is your faculty profile at RTS the, the, the place to go, or what does that look like? Yeah, that's, that's I guess, one place to go, though I'm not sure how often we, we update that. So I think one good way of keeping up with RTSDC and my own work is the RTSDC Faculty Podcast, um, which uh, we now record an episode a week, and we have unfailingly uploaded an episode a week. So... Oftentimes, we not only discuss general pastoral theological issues there, we're going through the Ten Commandments right now, but also we cover issues like on Herman Bobbing studies, analytic theology, um, that, that we're really trying to say, hey, here's where our work is as a faculty. And because my, my own work is in, primarily in Herman Bobbing studies and neo-Calvinism, that topic comes up quite a bit. So if you want to catch up with that material, that's there. But also other, other faculty members in the Washington, D.C., uh, campus especially that's going to be represented in that podcast. So I think probably keeping up with that firstly would be useful and then keeping up with all things Herman Bovink related. So one book that I know, I think what you're co-authoring with Corey Brock, I think if I, you can correct me if I'm wrong on Neo-Calvinism, which when is that supposed to come out? Do you have an idea? Yeah, it's with the publisher. It's with um, Lexham Press and you know, I and Corey, Corey Brock is, um, now I think transitioning to be a pastor at, at the at, at Edinburgh um, at St. Columbus there and he and I did our PhDs together at the University of Edinburgh on Herman Bovink and as we were just working alongside one another we thought to ourselves there really hasn't been a scholarly but also accessible introduction to neo-Calvinism like people still are pretty confused on what neo-Calvinism is or like what do you mean John Piper yeah. <laughs> and you know John MacArthur or something, but but really it's it's referring back to what Bavik and Kuiper were doing in Amsterdam and Kampen in the 19th 20th century, right? So, mm -hmm. what does that mean, and what are some of the theological uh, distinctives contributions of Neo Calvinism? So when people do know what Neo Calvinism is, people are like, oh, you mean like public theology, like worldview stuff, 
right? Like, yeah, sure, those are definitely dimensions, but we don't really know what did Kuiper and Bobbing say about the doctrine of scripture? That's really useful or distinctive. What did they say about the doctrine of common grace or creation that was really useful and distinctive? Now, that's what that, that book sets out to do. It's with the publisher. Hopefully, it will come out by the end of 2022 because they want to, I think, take their time and and, and pushing it forward. But um, yeah, it's a long wait. Uh, we just submitted yeah. the um, bibliography for it, actually. So, so Lord willing, the end of 2022 is going to come out. Well, I think whenever we get a date on that, we'll have to get you and Corey on here and have a chat about neo-Calvinism because I think that would probably write up a good amount of our listeners' alley to, to discuss right. those things. I think that would be fun. So, yeah. uh, great. This, this has been great. Um, you, I think you're a tremendous guest. I mean, for several reasons. I mean, you're just personable and nice, uh, but you also are interested in things that I think both me and Brandon are very much interested in, which, you know, the analytic theology melding with reformed confessional theology, blending these two things together. So anybody who likes to dabble in both of those worlds is a good friend for us. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us about this. I think it's helpful. And for those who've been listening, commend Gray's work. Go find it. I'll link to as much of it as I can in the show notes. So you can just click the link and go right there. And then as always, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty-nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine a pound all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.